This entire field of empathic accuracy is based on how we perceive facial cues, and that might be wrong. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. The poet Stephen Cosgrove once wrote, You may see all that is around you, but you may feel nothing at all. So try and close your eyes so tight and listen to the nighttime fall. Today we're joined by Michael Krauss from Yale University School of Management, who talked with us about his research examining the importance of listening to accurately estimate the emotions of others. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Michael Kraus. Hello, I'm Michael. I'm a social psychologist by training. I grew up in North County, San Diego. I went to undergrad at UC Berkeley and then stayed on for graduate school there. I did a postdoc after graduating in social psychology at University of California, San Francisco. And then I moved east first to the University of Illinois, uh, Central Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Then um, I'm for the last two and a half years or so, I've been at Yale University at the School of Management. My research is, you know, sort of has a dual interest. The first interest is hierarchies and inequality. And the second interest is uh, what we'll talk about today, which is emotion, empathy, compassion. A footnote on the first page of Michael's article dedicates it to Zoe. So we began our conversation by asking Michael who Zoe is and why his paper is dedicated to her. Oh, yeah. So Zoe is uh, my daughter. Um, one of the studies here, I think it's like a study two in this package, is the first lab study that we ran uh, when I was a new dad. And, and she's really all the motivation for this work. I, I was a new dad and I had these dreams of like... I'm on leave and I'm taking care of Zoe during the day. And then the idea is when she's sleeping, I'm working, right? Um, that lasted for maybe a month or two until it was, uh, you know, it's not feasible physiologically. But I, uh, I definitely spent a lot of time with her and got a real sense. Um, and it's, it's something that you can read about in, in psychology uh, work and developmental psych, but just got a real read on like how much vocalizations were important to our communication. And touch is important, especially in those early years where, you know, newborns can't see very well. And it was that kind of inspiration and all this contact that I was having with this newborn that really started me thinking about the other modalities. We think a lot about the face. Um, we think about facial expressions. All of this entire field of empathic accuracy is based on how we perceive facial cues, and that might be wrong. Uh, and it was certainly not consistent with my experience, at least with this early, this early relationship, this early dyad. So that's kind of where the inspiration for this started and why she gets credit in the paper. Michael's article covers a series of unusual experiments regarding empathic accuracy, the details of which we'll discuss in a moment. Next, Michael explains what inspired this line of research and summarizes how the various studies fit together. I think that people are practiced 
at masking facial expressions, using their body expressions, their dress, their style in way in strategic ways that can mask the message. But it's harder to both convey words that have meaning and then also mask the emotional content that goes along with them. So it's 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 a you know, it's emotional tell that rides along with the things that you're saying um, that I think can give away some um, some things. So the study starts out just thinking about how people understand the voice and, and its expression of emotion. So we try it in a number of different settings. Uh, so some of the studies are about like watching videos of people interacting and then trying to estimate the emotions those people ex- uh you think those people experience. And then some of the studies are about live interactions between people in varying conditions where you can see them or not, hear them and see them, and then you know seeing if accuracy and emotion recognition is different in those uh, varying contexts. Michael's first experiment revolved around previously recorded conversations that took place between two friends who were teasing each other. In his first study, he recruited 300 people to either watch these videos with the sound on, watch the videos but with the audio muted, or listen only to the audio without the video, then assess how each of the friends felt during the conversation. Finding some support for the idea that people perceive emotions more accurately through voice only rather than visual only or multi-sense communication, Michael carried out a second experiment in which 266 people were paired together and videotaped having conversations either in a lighted room or in a darkened room but with a camera's night vision feature turned on. Again, people in the experiment were somewhat better at judging their partner's self-assessed emotions when they could hear only their voice. Then, in his third experiment, Michael recruited 600 people to watch and listen to the lighted room video recording, a video of the interaction recorded using night vision, or an audio-only recording of the interaction. Here, he talks with us about why he chose to do this and what he found. So by this time, we've run the first two experiments. Um, And we're saying, you know, yeah, it seems like we've got something, but, you know, the effects are not real strong. So we're really looking to put this to the test and have some stronger evidence here. Um, And then we've also got the problem of study two is cool in some ways because it's, you know, real people interacting. They are um, talking in light and dark rooms, which is unusual, but there are some confounds with that. And so um, why not collect a large study uh, in a precise way with our conditions to allow us to make better inferences about whether or not voice only is uh, is performing better than uh, voice and visual. So we've got basically three conditions in this experiment. Um, And so what we find here is that the greatest accuracy is the voice only condition in the dark. And that's greater than both voice and visual in the light and then voice and visual in the dark. The major important comparison here is voice only in the dark versus voice and visual in the dark, because that is the identical interaction with the identical information, the identical speech. Um, If you find any difference between these two conditions, that's evidence that the voice-only condition is improving empathic accuracy. So I think um, this is our strongest evidence uh, for the phenomenon in question. Doug and I wondered about those recordings of two friends teasing each other in Michael's first study. So we circled back to ask him what led him to choose that kind of social interaction as a stimulus. You know, first of all, the choice is it's a, uh, it's a convenience thing. I have a library of videos that I can use and I'm, I'm looking for evocative videos, right? Videos that have a range of emotions that would be a challenge for people to be accurate in measuring emotions. So teasing is that kind of context. 
people run the range of being really delighted to feeling a really uncomfortable to feeling a little bit angry. And so there's a broad range of emotional experience during these videos. That's why we chose teasing videos. Um, the paradigm itself is um, something that my graduate advisor has done for a couple of decades. Uh, one of his major early works is about how teasing is hierarchical and intimate. So it's, you know, it's about how the ways in which you tease are based on your social status, but they're also a way to foster trust and intimacy. So you jab at people in ways to show them that you care. And if you do it right, you jab at them and then you lift them up. And then everybody typically does it right, except for people who are really high status. They can pick on people without having to pick them up afterwards. But, uh, but we borrowed this paradigm because of the emotional range that it tends to evoke in the people that are, uh, that are experiencing it. Similarly, Ryan and I were curious in learning what led Michael to decide to have participants in the second study interact with each other in the dark, as well as what kind of situations this might mimic in the real world outside of the lab. Michael explains. I'm thinking about movie theaters, I'm thinking around campfires, I'm thinking, you know, the intimate times between spouses and, and the like. You know, there's a lot of communication that happens in the dark, and, and that got me thinking about how you know, I, I, like I think when I think about emotion, I think about I, I think a little bit evolutionarily and I think about the past and I think about how much more vigilant people had to be in the past in darkness. And and that led, led me to think that, you know, we probably had to get along a bit in darkness communicating and a word and, and the tone of that word uh, spoken would matter. So that was that was kind of the the impetus for having to sort of justify this experimental design to myself, but also to the people who are evaluating the research. This analysis is also in the supplementary materials, but we actually we do some nonverbal behavior analysis for the voice and visual in the light versus voice and visual in the dark. And that's basically what you find. You find equal amounts of expressivity across the conditions. So even though we turned off the light, so, so a lot of the experiment two supplementary analyses are about figuring out how different in what ways are the light and dark interactions different from a behavior perspective, they, they weren't different. The, the nonverbals were really similar across the situations. And I think it's hard to shut off your nonverbals for a short interaction, even though it's in the dark, it's, um, I think it'll affect some of your verbal information. Touch can also be a primary sensor for understanding the emotions of others. A gentle touch to one's cheek evokes emotions quite different than a slap to the face. We asked Michael where touch fits in his research into empathic accuracy. I started this work looking at the, you know, the other domains of emotion. I started with touch. I actually um, have this study on NBA teams and, you know, teams that touch more are more cooperative and they tend to perform a little bit better than teams that don't touch as much, controlling for, you know, how well the teams played in the individual game and the, the money that the teams were making and preseason expectations and all that. So I've uh, in general felt that emotion research more broadly has focused much too much on the face. You know, it's, it's, it's too much on the face in ways that have neglected some of the more basic starting points for emotion that we experience in our early lives. Thinking back to Zoe and carrying her early on, like she experiences me through smell, touch, and voice, right? That's how she experiences me for the first four months of her life. That's how we all experience emotions, you know, the most, the strongest 
for the first several months of our lives. So it has to be fund- foundational to our emotional experiences, how they develop, and then how they synergize with the facial expressions that we develop. So emotion researchers, maybe we have it reversed. Maybe we should be looking at the face last um, and other emotions first, or modalities first. Studies previous to Michael's had explored the role of voice along with visual cues on empathic accuracy. That research suggested that voice played very little role in participants' abilities to correctly identify the emotions others were feeling. Michael, however, questioned some of these findings and decided to explore questions similar to those of previous studies. Here, he explains why and how he did so. We had um, looked in the past literature and other people had sort of examined this question. They had done it looking at empathic accuracy paradigms where people are trying to estimate emotions. And they did it and they found that there was no difference in the previous studies between voice only and combined voice and visual conditions, but that voice only conditions were generally better than visual only conditions. So this is evidence that the voice is really important, but not more important than combined channels. So when I found that work, I thought, well, you know, first of all, I'm on the right track because it suggests that the voice is really important for how we perceive emotions. But when you look further at those studies, you, you see that they're a little underpowered, so they don't have quite as many participants in them. So they're, they're maybe potentially missing a small effect, and we're dealing with pretty small effects here. Um, so they don't have the power to detect that. But the second piece is that the way in which they had participants uh, rate their emotions during the interactions is they had them go back and rewatch videos of themselves interacting and then estimate their emotions. And I thought it was that experimental choice the retrospective going back and watching and rating emotions that would bias the test in favor of visual information. So when you're watching yourself, there might be some motivations to go ahead and say, I want to make my own self-reports of my emotions during this interaction consistent with what I look like in the interaction. So we thought it would might inflate the voice and visual condition. So that's why we uh, we we still pressed on, even though even though uh, some of that early experiment work didn't show exactly what we um, were predicting. Michael's studies involved a variety of unique interventions. So Doug and I asked about these variations in interactions and why he believes that they were important. I mean, I think this is one of the, um, you know, this is all the implicit knowledge that comes with studying emotions is like there's there's some really well-treaded paradigms for, you know, creating uh, situations where people feel emotions. And a lot of times those rely on really controlled settings where one emotion is being, you know, modulated up or down. And that's great in terms of an experimental design perspective. Like it's really tightly controlled. But in practice with emotions, they're not, they're, they're not just one. They're blends. They're, uh, you know, people don't always know exactly what they're experiencing. So they use a lot of different terms to sort of encapsulate everything. And it's that mix that I think is really the domain that is most generalizable to our experiences of empathic accuracy in the world, right? It's that richness of the many emotions that people experience where I think errors in empathic accuracy can occur and where, you know, people can really show their accuracy. So that's why in, in many ways we tried to choose some situations that were, that were eliciting a range of experiences of emotion. Michael's fourth study examined empathic accuracy in a real-world context where voice-only modes of communication are common, voice chat in the workplace. He discovered that it too led participants to focus more attention on speech content and vocal cues than facial expressions. 
The study was pre-registered with the Center for Open Science at a time when pre-registration was less common than it is today. Michael talked with us next about what led him to decide to pre-register that study. When I talk to other people about pre-registering, I tell them that we do it anyway. Like we, we try to articulate our predictions ahead of time. Like you have to do this if you're going to actually, you know, be able to uh, run a study. You got you to gotta know what you're going to do with the data once you get it. And I think that pre-registration, if anything, it makes you be more precise about that process in ways that only can make your science better and more sound. So I'm a big fan of it. It's a normal part of my work process now to pre-register. But, you know, as I was writing this paper, this is right during a time where I'm learning about all the tools to be more open, to be more transparent, to make sure that your statistical inferences are sound. That's still a learning process that I'm going through, but you can actually see it unfolding in this experiment. In particular, you know, you've got now we've got three experiments. Um, the fourth experiment is, uh, you know, a similar design using, you know, a similar manipulation of voice and visual, but using a chat platform. But what we did was uh, we just took the additional step of saying, all right, well, I'm going to record what I'm going to do, what analyses I'm going to perform, how many people I'm going to collect the data uh, for, and I'm just going to, you know, regist register that. You know, you get a timestamp registration that you put on the Open Science Framework that anybody can look up and read. And then when your data are collected, you promise to collect all that data that you said you're going to collect, and then you run that analysis that you promised to run. And then it's, uh, you know, it's just an additional way for others to have confidence in your predictions and your analyses as you're looking at your uh, the results for your study. So at the time, I was really interested in how can I be more convincing about the data that I'm collecting? How can I be more transparent in my practices? And how can I sort of improve my own science so that I'm not um, finding things that are not going, to, not going to be robust to further examination? So all those considerations led me towards pre-registration. Reading the emotions of others is a major hurdle for the kinds of artificial intelligence systems that we interact with in everyday life, such as Amazon Alexa and Google Home. Here, Michael explains what implications he predicts that future empathic accuracy research might have on the design of AI systems. Uh, some of me uh, thinks that eventually their, uh, you know, AI is going to uh, outpace humans for emotions uh, in terms of like the ability to recognize them at least. And that it is there's this bottleneck that humans experience about attention. There's such a wealth of information that we express in our behavior, in our vocal expressions, in what we say. Um, there's so much about prior experience and, you know, prior interaction that is caught up in, you know, the emotions that we experience and then convey to people that there's just not enough bandwidth on our part to really take it all in, which is why schemas are so powerful, right? Because they can sort of automatically route you into the right frame of mind. But the, they're proximates. And I think that, you know, eventually, and I, who knows how long it will take, but eventually AI will, will have the processing power to take it all in and make an estimate that'll outpace humans. I, you know, I think it's one, this is one domain where we tend to think that our, you know, artificial intelligence will never be able to get the complexities of our emotional lives. But I, I'm actually not as confident that we get the, uh, the complexities of our emotional lives. Small effects, especially when meta-analyzed, like Michael did across his studies, can point towards big benefits. So we wondered if Michael believes that his study might potentially have value for researchers in other disciplines. What is the benefit of having, I don't know, something like a 2% 
return on our accuracy in reading others' emotions that happens across, you know, decades of a relationship. What would that mean? And I don't, you know, we don't have studies that really definitively say an answer to that question. But I think that this is an example where a a small effect might actually have major implications for how you're relating to people, how you're understanding them, how you're connecting with them in meaningful ways. You know, I was teaching the other day and there's an investment um, management uh, um, student in the class talking about how everybody is polished everybody says they're going to get it to you next week and how you can tell that they're not going to get it to you next week. And it's, you know, it's not in how they, um, how they look or, you know, their facial expressions. It's in how they say that they're going to get it to you next week. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think there's something in not being able to as, and we're not as practiced at, you know, masking our vocal expressions um, as other modalities. To wrap things up, Doug and I were interested in knowing where Michael might place his research within the bigger context of emotions research. Here, he discussed whether emotion is a real and naturally evolved trait in humans rather than one that we invented. Uh, there's this, there's always this sort of a roaring debate in emotion, and, and you know maybe maybe everybody's aware of it, but maybe not. So the the debate has to do with whether emotions are natural kinds or whether they are based in you know sort of the fundamentals of you know f- a physiological reaction and then an explanation that's rooted in language and past histories and the like and, and i think that one of the things that happens when you study emo anytime you study emotions is you're always in the background contending with like what is your place in terms of your definition of emotion do you think they are you know evolutionary rooted feeling states that are naturally manifesting as discrete entities or is this a physiological reaction that you, you then explain with your language and meaning that's going on in the background? So, I mean, one of the secret things that's happening here is this is another vote for this constructionist perspective on emotion, I think. I think that it's, it's highlighting how important how you say things and, the, and the, you know, the words that you use when you say them in constructing the meaning of emotions. So it's, it's also sort of a, a piece of that debate that's going on. Even though, to be honest with you, I was trained by people who are more natural kinds-based emotion researchers. So my, my family tree is uh, Paul Ekman. Dacker Keltner was a postdoc of Paul Ekman, and, and Dacker Keltner is my advisor. So don't tell him I said that. That was Michael Krauss discussing his article, Voice-Only Communication Enhances Empathic Accuracy, published in the journal American Psychologist. You'll find a link to his paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials he discussed during the show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Anna-Sophia Wall from the University of Zurich. She'll talk with us about her research into using light to trigger the regeneration of nerves damaged from a stroke. So we have a, a very efficient therapy, and now we wanted to see with the optogenetics and the rehab, so this combination, we could get the same effect. We hope that you'll join us again.